Welcome to the Aristia podcast, where experts talk about excellence. Our podcast format includes young professionals early in their careers talking to an expert for academic and industry insights. At some point, we turn the tables around where the expert asks the young professional about their agonies, dreams, and aspirations about their field. In today's podcast, we're honored to have Dr. Angelos Hanyotis, Professor of Ancient History and Classics at the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton. The two young professionals are Dimitris Karambas, DPhil in Classical Archaeology at University of Oxford, England, and PhD candidate Georgios Tsalakis at the Institute for the Study of the Ancient World at New York University. Hello, Professor Hanyotis. We feel that a good starting point for this discussion is the definition of this series title. How do you define Aristeia or excellence? In hard sciences, metrics can provide a safe guide for recognizing a scholar as excellent, but what are the criteria in humanities? We would like you also to comment on the use of the term Aristeia in the Greek public sphere, where it caused a debate even in the Greek parliament. Thank you, uh, Yorgos. Let me start uh, perhaps with the uh, last part of your uh, question about uh, how loaded the word aristia has become in uh, modern discussions, um, its association with the idea that it is something uh, elitarian. Uh, I have started my career as a philologist, and uh, I understand aristia as a word that derives not necessarily from aristos, but from aristevo, from a verb, exactly as nistia is the process of nistevo, and thitia of thitevo, and so on. So uh, for me, aristia is not a condition. It is not a state of existence. It is not a status. Aristia is a process. It is an effort. It is something that needs to be seen in certain contexts. Aristia, when, in what respect, and how long. One may be Aristos, excellent, or may excel for a period of time or for a particular aspect of a discipline, but uh, fail to produce something um, uh, later on. So for me, Aristia is mainly the continuous effort to improve, a continuous contest with others and with one's self. And uh, this brings me to the first part of your question. How would I define Aristia or excellence in the humanities? I associate Aristia in the humanities with the various ways through which one can make a contribution, a lasting contribution to one's own discipline. And in the humanities, this can be done in a variety of ways. It can be done through the reinterpretation of sources through new answers to old questions and can be done by asking questions that no one had asked before, but it can also be done by providing to fellow scholars sources that they can study, for instance, by publishing inscriptions, by making archaeological material available. So it is a variety of ways in, uh, through which someone 
can make a contribution that is lasting. And I underscore the uh, word lasting because in the humanities, sometimes uh, we consume trendy things that are forgotten uh, within uh, years or uh, a decade. And people do not even remember uh, that um, a book uh, was ever written, uh, although it may have been uh, discussed for a long time. Uh, I will prefer not to give examples, although I do have some examples in mind. Thank you very much. And uh, to move on with the second question, uh, what do you think is the role of the scholars of the Greek diaspora and how can they further contribute to the academic and scientific development of Greece? Do you think that the Greek state and society seek the advice of these scholars? Uh, well, I will try to avoid generalizations. I will speak from uh, personal experience. Um, I have been asked to contribute to the Greek academic system in a variety of ways. First of all, because I'm one of the few ancient historians uh, of Greek descent or who can read uh, Greek who live abroad, I am uh, very often asked to participate in uh, election or promotion procedures in Greek universities. And I think that this can become a valuable contribution if uh, this participation is taken seriously by Greek uh, scholars, that is, if they uh, provide not only expertise, uh, but also some uh, rigorous evaluation of the procedures. Um, another uh, way is by participating uh, in uh, committees. Uh, for instance, I, am, I have been a member of evaluation committees in the past. For instance, uh, in 1995, I, I contributed to the evaluation of research institutions uh, in Greece, the uh, uh, National Research uh, Foundation, uh, the Institute of Mediterranean Studies, and so on. And currently, I serve together with another Greek of the diaspora, but also with three other members who have experience abroad in the uh, Greek um, Council of Higher, Higher Education. And uh, I think that this um, uh, feedback uh, can, again, if it is presented in a cautious way, it can be useful for Greek universities. Uh, but we shouldn't overdo it because sometimes we do not know the dynamics um, in the field. That is how Greek uh, universities really uh, work. But there are many other uh, ways that have not been uh, properly exploited by the Greek universities. We shouldn't ask the question of how the diaspora Greeks can contribute. We should ask the questions of what Greek universities have not done in order to allow Greek diaspora scholars to contribute. And I'm thinking of summer schools, of workshops, of uh, lectures, of supervision, of PhD dissertations, of contribution in uh, the planning of study programs, um, in um, uh, joint uh, decrees with the universities um, where the diaspora Greeks uh, are active. Uh, the Mainly, uh, the activities that take place are limited to Erasmus uh, cooperations and the like, whereas there is a lot of unexploited possibilities uh, for Greek universities to um, accept, to invite, and uh, cooperate uh, with diaspora Greeks. Recently, we celebrated 200 years since the start of the Greek War of Independence. 
Since you have used the concept of collective memory in your work, we would like to ask you how such events define the Greek collective memory, and what's your opinion of the celebrations of last March and their publicity in the Greek media? Well, unfortunately, uh, we have only a limited um, uh, version of the planned celebrations due to COVID. Uh, I don't even want to imagine how the celebrations would have been if uh, there were no uh, measures uh, that uh, limited um, uh, the various um, uh, events. I think that um, an anniversary, uh, whether this is uh, our birthdays or uh, a wedding anniversary uh, or the anniversary of the day we acquired, um, we reached a milestone in our lives or national uh, anniversaries always provide a possibility to think about what we have achieved. Uh, And uh, on the day of the celebration, what uh, necessarily prevails is uh, the positive, the idea that we made it. Most uh, historical anniversaries in the course of history are anniversaries of uh, success stories. They're not anniversaries of failures. And um, uh, this is uh, something that uh, concerns me in the way uh, both 1881, uh, but also a year earlier, the uh, Sea Battle of Salamis and the Battle of Thermopylae were commemorated and remembered. Uh, Historical anniversaries, uh, precisely because they are a form of celebration, they focus on a selective set of events. And this is not something new. This is what uh, um, happened in ancient Greece uh, as well, where you also had historical anniversaries. So we did celebrate, for instance, the 2,500 years of the Sea Battle of Salamis, We do celebrate the 200 years from 1821, but we didn't celebrate, for instance, this is nothing to celebrate, but we also didn't organize uh, a memorial uh, event for the genocide of the Pontus Greeks in uh, 2019. And as far as I know, there is no committee that uh, is uh, about to organize uh, memorials or days of memory and commemoration for the 1922 uh, Asia Minor disaster. And these are, I think, uh, very instructive examples of how um, we use history in order uh, to promote certain forms of uh, identity. What I do find uh, very positive in the various events that um, evolve around the 200 years of the War of Independence is the fact that this uh, celebration and anniversary gave us an opportunity to remember again the fact that throughout history, very often, a large part of the Greek population, in some uh, periods of history, the largest part, of Greek population lived outside of the borders of the Greek state. This was certainly true, for instance, in the Hellenistic uh, period where you have diaspora Greeks as far as Afghanistan. This is very far from uh, the Greek mainland. It was true in 1821 when a lot of uh, the Greek speakers and people who felt that they were Greeks lived outside of what were to become the borders of the first Greek state. And it is also true in uh, 2021 when a large part of the uh, Greeks, not only scientists, but also people who work and are uh, involved in uh, industry, business, and so on, live outside of the borders of the Greek 
state and I think that um, uh, in uh, the selectiveness of what we remember, this is something to which we should give high priority. This is something that it is worth remembering. Uh, regarding uh, Boris Johnson's comment in the Greek newspaper uh, Tanea about the Parthenon marbles, you published an article in Kathimerini. You argue uh, that there are, is a better approach for the repatriation of the Parthenon marbles. The Greek parliament should appoint a committee that will begin negotiation with the British Museum on behalf of the Acropolis Museum. Negotiation not for the return of the stolen Elgin marbles, but for the restoration of a monument of universal importance. Do you think that your request will be heard? <laughs> this is a very good question. Um, uh, I have my doubts, uh, given the experience that I have uh, with the way the Parthenon marbles have been the object of uh, political exploitation. And uh, they are very suitable uh, for either um, triumphing uh, or trying to uh, celebrate a triumph or uh, to criticize uh, people who have expressed ideas about uh, the ways um, uh, the Parthenon marbles uh, can be uh, reunited. I place my hopes, uh, to be honest, not the Greek parliament and the Greeks and the, Greek and the discussion on the subject in Greece. I place my hopes in the discussion of this proposal in the international committees for the reunification of the Parthenon marbles, for instance, in Australia or in the United Kingdom. I think that it is only with the pressure of these committees that uh, the Greek government and the Greek parliament may take the initiative to rethink whether the approach to cry out, give us back what you have stolen, is uh, the best diplomatic approach to a very uh, complex uh, matter. Uh, for me, uh, it is a matter really of um, asking the question uh, as um, and asking the question between um, or to have a discussion between equal uh, institutions about a cultural question and the cultural question is how can we protect the integrity of a work of art and leave aside the politics uh, of the matter, the legal issues and anything that has nothing to do with the only questions that the only question that for me has a priority and this question is how can we make a work of art of emblematic significance one again. In your academic career, you have published many books and articles on political history, administration, epigraphy, economy, emotions, memory, just to list only a few topics. What's your definition of history? How do you treat the relationship between history and archaeology? We know that you and Adonis Kotsonas are going to start a ex new excavation at Litos this summer. Not something that one would expect from a historian, or not? Yeah, well, I define myself, first of all, not as a, a historian, but as a scholar of antiquity. Uh, there are various ways to approach history. One of them is to approach it diachronically and make comparisons between uh, historical periods. This is something that I occasionally do. 
But I started my studies and my career basically as someone who is interested in classical philology. This was my first uh, interest. From that, I moved to archaeology and finally to ancient history. I didn't even plan to become an ancient historian. So for me, uh, ancient studies is a unity. And there is no way, I am absolutely convinced about that, uh, there is no way to approach uh, the ancient world in its complexity if one limited uh, uh, the study to one particular type of sources. It is through the dialogue of the source material, the methods, and the information that the various sources provide that one can get a holistic view of um, uh, Greek antiquity. Recently, uh, you have been appointed to the Hellenic Authority for Higher Education. Currently in Greece, the libraries are closed, the funding is minimal, and there is no sign that anything will improve soon. At the same time, there is a strong discussion around the presence of the police forces on the campus of the Greek universities. There are voices claiming that this is an opportunity for a change, but the future of research, especially in the humanities, does not appear that bright. Are we about to lose this train as well? Um, I think that uh, the whole discussion of um, concerning the presence of uh, police in the universities is not uh, the cause of a problem, it's just the symptom of problems that have accumulated in the last 40 years uh, because of wrong uh, policies in higher education. In higher education, policies should be dictated by academic criteria. And academic criteria are, for instance, uh, what study programs should be uh, introduced, what is the relationship between what people study and uh, the job market, how can we improve the uh, professional uh, training uh, of our students, and what I find very important is how can we provide them with student life. And these are exactly the questions that are never asked in connection with uh, higher education. The fact that um, we have the issue of um, uh, occupations of buildings and protests and so on is just the result of the fact uh, of a very simple fact. And the very simple fact is that Greek students are not happy being Greek students. They are not happy being students in the universities for a variety of reasons, either because they study things that they never planned to study, because uh, they study uh, on the basis of what, uh, the discipline that their grade would allow them to study. They study in places they don't want to be, and they study with the perspective that they are not going to work in the discipline that uh, they are going to graduate in. Uh, Greece has the lowest position among European countries in the um, uh, employment of graduates of Greek universities, 70%, which means that approximately one third of the graduate of Greek universities are never going to work in the discipline that they studied. This are all reasons for a tremendous dissatisfaction in the academic community. And instead of discussing how we are going to improve the situation, what we're doing is to discuss whether um, uh, 1,000 policemen uh, should be hired in order to deal with the unsatisfactory situation that Greek society uses universities as a parking place, a place where Greek society parks the students for a period of four to five, six, 
or seven years because Greek society doesn't really know what to do with young people. But I didn't answer the uh, question about the humanities. I think that generally and surprisingly, the humanities are in a better state in Greece than they are in other uh, European countries. And this uh, has in part to do with the fact that um, uh, Greek um, society uh, appreciates the humanities and history and archaeology and literature more than um, other countries. I was surprised, for instance, to see that despite the economic crisis of the recent years, there was one branch uh, that uh, suffered but didn't suffer as much as one uh, would expect, and this is bookstores or the publication of books. And I'm not talking about books on computers or physics or mathematics. I'm talking about books on history, literature, um, uh, uh, sociology, and so on and uh, so forth. So in the case of uh, uh, the humanities in Greece, I am rather optimistic. Uh, and again, I see there a tremendous potential in international cooperations between Greek universities and universities uh, abroad. Uh, for instance, I was thinking of China because I am a visiting professor in a Chinese university. And I know that Chinese, uh, first of all, have a tremendous respect for the Greeks and they would give anything to be able to spend some time uh, studying at a Greek university. And this could provide also opportunities for the creation of better organized uh, study courses uh, in disciplines that would attract uh, students from uh, abroad. This is a non-fully uh, exploited potential of Greek universities. Someone familiar with your work can point out that you are finding inspiration from the idea of time machine. I'm quoting the title of one of your recent articles, Poetry as a Time Machine, Ancient Inscriptions in Kavafi's Work. I believe that I have counted seven such references in your work. Thus, Dimitris and I will lend you our time machine and will give you the chance for two trips. The first trip is going to be in the world that you examine your papers. Where would you go and why? Uh, uh, there are probably more uh, than seven references to time uh, machines, and this is uh, indeed something that uh, fascinates me. And sometimes I understand uh, the work of an ancient historian like uh, the work of an actor uh, that tries to get into the skin of the people uh, that one studies. Uh, to answer your question, uh, my top priority would be uh, Alexandria. Uh, around 280-270 BC. Uh, I would like to be in Alexandria, working in the early phase of the Library of Alexandria, working as an assistant of Xenodotus, who was assigned the organization of the library. And I would very much like to be assigned the part of the library that is dedicated to history and uh, philology. Just imagine the treasures that I would be able to read uh, historical works, um, uh, early forms of novel, poetry, and so on, that it is lost. On the contrary, uh, if I were to be assigned to the section of mathematics and philosophy, I would probably look for another job. But Alexandria is, uh, in that period, is for me one of the most fascinating uh, places uh, to ever have been. For the second trip with our time machine, uh, you are going to visit your younger self. What would be your advice to the young Agilos Kanyotis? 
<laughs> uh, oh boy, this is uh, a question that uh, I could have never uh, expected. Uh, I think, um, well, the first answer that comes to my mind is an answer that has absolutely nothing to do with scholarship. I would have dedicated more time to sports than uh, I did. And this is something, uh, a pleasure that I discovered very late in my uh, life. Uh, for instance, I um, would have liked to uh, participate uh, in uh, sport activities or do more uh, competitive swimming and so on uh, and so forth. In terms of um, uh, my uh, future uh, career. Uh, I don't know if this sounds uh, very uh, arrogant, uh, but I don't think that I did something uh, that I have regretted and would give myself an advice to do something uh, differently. I think that uh, from the uh, very beginning, I had a very strong interest, for instance, in language learning, which, approve, uh, which proved to be one of the greatest assets that I have. And uh, I was reading all the time, visiting museums and so on. So I, I wouldn't change any of that. But what I would add it would be physical exercise and sports. This is a, a great time to turn the tables and uh, have Dr. Hanyotis ask uh, Dimitris and Yorgos about uh, their dreams, their agonies, uh, what would you like to learn from these uh, two young uh, professionals in your field, uh, Dr. Hanyotis? Yes, uh, as you heard, I changed uh, plans in my career. For instance, I started as someone who was interested in uh, classical philology, then I was interested in modern history, but never in ancient history. So my question to uh, Yorgos and Dimitris would be, what is it that really changed your original ideas about uh, your studies. When you entered the university, you had certain concepts about what you're going to study and how you're going to study and to what aim, uh, to what end. Uh, have your studies made you change your views about that? Have you learned something and what is this? Uh, Yoro, you want to start? Yes. Um, I think that my relationship with uh, history and ancient studies in general is uh, a history of change. So, I think my first memory of me liking history is a novel by Penelope Delta, then my favorite professors in high school, my favorite professors in university. So I think there was a constant change, different questions, different approaches, different way of seeing yourself and the other. So every time I see a different me answering different questions. Uh, for example, now that uh, I'm studying in the United States, I see I changed my aspect from studying the big questions to see more about the daily life of ancient people, implement different questions in uh, my work, and also implement different tools in my work as digital humanities and so on. But what I realized is what is important is to ask, to keep asking questions, your sources and the bibliography, and in the end, uh, they are going to respond. Dimitri? Uh, yes. Uh, so I think that, uh, that for me, everything changed uh, during my third year of studies when uh, I had the chance to do, uh, to go uh, for a year abroad in the University of Southampton because I did my undergrad in the University of Crete. And for me, it was, uh, was a big change 
to leave the island, to go to another island, a big island at the time, and experience the, the, the English way, educational system, let's say. Uh, so that's where I first came in contact with the aspects of maritime archaeology. And that's when I decided that that's what I want to do. And uh, in combination with my love uh, uh, for, for the sea and uh, having in mind that I was already uh, a diver, I said to myself, that's what I want to do. And a uh, few years later, I'm, I'm here working on... Uh, on the maritime antiquities in Crete and uh, looking forward for the field work this summer, which uh, probably is going to be quite exciting. We're going to travel now in the post-pandemic future when people can meet without the fear of coronavirus. Uh, Professor Hanyotis, how would you describe your ideal dinner? Who are going to be your guests? Where this dinner will be? and what you're going to eat, and what music you're going to listen to? Uh, <laughs> this is a, uh, an interesting uh, question, and the constellation that you're going to hear will consist of uh, items that don't really um, fit together. Uh, my ideal guest for a dinner would be, and uh, you would certainly not uh, expect uh, this answer from me, Jeff Bezos. Uh, to talk about space colonization, uh, because I am convinced that um, uh, the future of um, uh, humankind is in uh, colonizing uh, space. This is just a very natural um, development uh, of all the history of mankind. Uh, people continually colonize. They either colonize uh, territories, they colonize uh, imaginary territories, uh, that is new uh, areas, they colonized uh, the night. I think that it is logical to expect that they will colonize the moon, the Mars and whatever. And I should add that I would also offer myself as a volunteer in an expedition, uh, even risking uh, never returning back uh, to, the, uh, to Earth. Uh, but since I <laughs> already volunteered to leave uh, the Earth, uh, I would like to leave it uh, after I would have had a nice uh, dinner, uh, perhaps uh, in a seafood restaurant in uh, Rethymnon, eating uh, barbunia uh, and tirocafteri, drinking moscofilero. And uh, music, uh, this is where the difficulties come, because uh, my actually favorite music for dinner is not uh, uh, music that you can combine with Barbunia, with Jeff Bezos, and with a discussion about colonizing the space. Uh, for instance, uh, under normal circumstances, I would be listening to, what you know, uh, Lena Horn and uh, Love Me or Leave Me and Let Me Be Lonely. Uh, but in that case, I would probably uh, choose something um, by... Uh, Hadzidakis, for instance. Uh, love me or leave me or let me be lonely. You won't believe me, but I love you only. I'd rather be lonely than happy with somebody else. You might find the night time the right time for kissing, but night time is my time for just reminiscing. Regretting instead of forgetting with somebody else.
A huge thank you to Dr. Angelos Hanyotis, Dimitris Karabas, and Georgios Chalakis. Thank you very much for this podcast, Aristia in 30 Minutes, where experts talk about excellence.